This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 57 All Things Good and Pure, being the life, times, and education of the second king of Dynasty 18, Amunhotep I. We learn about the education of young boys, the role of scribes and literate men, and explore the reign and legacy of Amunhotep himself. This episode is brought to you by Nicholas Mastro-Sunk, Brenda Wass, Richard McNeils, and Linda Ralston. Thank you for all your support, especially during our recent hiatus. I am pleased to report that the podcast is now back on schedule. Look forward to our episodes every two weeks, and as the New Kingdom barrels on, you can expect more one-off episodes dealing with individual topics. You can also look forward to some prize giveaways, and even some guest episodes and interviews with Egyptologists and historians. If you haven't already listened to it, I'd like to take the opportunity to give a shout-out to another Egyptian podcast currently operating. Eric's Guide to Ancient Egypt is run out of California, and takes a thematic approach to Egyptian topics. The author, Eric, discusses moments in time, particular individuals he likes, and different groups. All in all, he's got an excellent show going, and if you just can't get enough Egypt, or you want a different angle on things now and then, I encourage you to head on over. That's Eric's Guide to Ancient Egypt. Enjoy! As always, I am your host, Dominic Perry, back from the dead and ready to roar. In 1530 BCE, or thereabouts, King Armosa I, liberator of Egypt, was buried. Thebes was at peace. The sovereignty of an independent Egypt was restored. The armies disbanded after their victorious campaigns and went home to their villages. The scribes began to tally and reckon the booty now pouring into Theban treasuries. And the craftsmen of Thebes could anticipate a new spate of building projects, as young Amunhotep was expected to spend large on temples, statues, monuments, all to the power of his family. Year one began bright and happy for the country. In Thebes, six-year-old Amunhotep could begin his reign in peace, and focus his efforts first and foremost on the most important element of the king's responsibilities, piety and veneration of the gods. Amunhotep took the throne name Jesser Ka Rei, or the Ka of Rei is sacred, an auspicious name, suggesting that the king put the sun god front and centre in his religious outlook, and his public representation. That was good, it was reliable, it was conventional, and it was proper. But then again, it probably wasn't his decision, was it? Amunhotep was just six years old. If he was making any important decisions on his own, I'll eat my hat. On top of that, he also had two powerful figures in his life, 
figures that would have been a formidable influence on his choice. These figures were his mother, Armosa Nefertari, and his grandmother, the legendary but now aged Queen Mother Ahotep. Now in her early fifties, Ahotep had been matriarch of the Theban royal family for 35 years. By comparison, Armosa Nefertari was a bit of a newcomer, but still, she had been in power for nearly 25 years. She was more than capable of taking on the burdens of rule and leading the new kingdom into its apparently bright future. The two women took the lead on behalf of the six-year-old, with Armosa Nefertari at the forefront and Ahotep retiring into a sort of support role, kind of a semi-retired pension. In fact, Queen Ahotep probably had a literal pension of her own, in the form of a royal granary dedicated to her use. It had its own administrator, a man named Heri, and it was officially named the Granary of the King's Wife and King's Mother Ahotep. So she was sitting pretty, her needs were taken care of. The Queen Mother could now begin to wind down her duties and pass things over to her experienced daughter. Together with Amunhotep, the triumvirate could be expected to arrange great things for Egypt's future. But at first, nothing much of note eventuated. The king and his advisers simply declared that the works of King Armosa would continue as he had left them, and that was all. No new projects would begin yet. Instead, the ship of state would continue on its course. No deviations, no innovations. No major activity of any sort, really. Nothing noteworthy, anyway. So, what on earth was the king doing? Well, he was probably going to school. As I've mentioned previously, Amunhotep I ascended to the throne much earlier than he should have. He was, at most, about six years old, maybe a little bit older, but he had a lot to learn before he could hope to fill his father's and mother's shoes as a capable and powerful ruler. To begin with, he needed to get himself an education. In ancient Egypt, the true rulers of the country, those who held the most potent administrative influence, were men who were literate. These men, and 99% of them were men, were called the zeshu, the scribes, or those who can write. They organised labour, recorded and parcelled out deliveries of food and valuables. They helped immortalise kings by turning spoken whims into written decrees. They composed letters, prayers, instructions, hymns, all the documents that kept the machinery of the royal state, its bureaucracy, its powerful army and its priesthood, functioning and in check. By the time the Hyksos were destroyed, the scribe had become a symbol of all that was civilised and cultural, everything that distinguished the Egyptian people from their closest neighbours. The desert folk? Completely illiterate. The Nubians? Well, they could learn, but if they did, they had to learn hieroglyphs, because Nubians did not have their own written language. Same with the Hyksos, who had conquered Egypt by force, but quickly adopted the trappings of their host culture, including the gold standard of reading and writing Egyptian. The people across the Sinai were another matter. Many kingdoms in the Near and Middle East did have their own written languages, and the Egyptian diplomats of the New Kingdom respected this enough that just 150 years after Amunhotep I, Egyptian leaders were sending messages to foreign rulers written in the languages of those countries. But in order to do this, the Egyptian kings had to issue their messages in Egyptian, and then hand them over to specially trained scribes who could write down the message and translate it into the foreign tongue. All diplomatic wrangling passed through the hands of this elite and literate class, 
and when the New Kingdom reached its height, they were handling messages that could decide the fate of cities, peoples, and even whole empires. At the dawn of the 18th dynasty, when the king in Thebes ruled a vast territory, but did not get involved with those foreigners too much, the power to read and write, to be a scribe of the Egyptian language, was still a local one. But a scribe could do things that were beyond the average person's understanding. They could harness abstract concepts and turn them into something practical, something powerful and vital. They could turn an idea or royal whim into the designs of a temple, an obelisk or a sacred tomb. They could also take the fears of a person facing death and palliate them with an elaborate, personalised guide to the underworld, including all of the instructions and spells that person would need to traverse that most difficult of journeys. Scribes could do a thousand things, and all of them without leaving the comfort, quote-unquote, of their simple cross-legged seat on the floor. If that was not a powerful image to the ancient illiterate commoner, I don't know what is. But in relation to the wider society, scribes were still incredibly rare. Estimates are vague, but most Egyptologists would reckon that the scribal or literate population of Egypt never really reached above 1 or 2 percent, if that. So with all this literary scarcity, this exclusivity of skill, it should come as no surprise when I say that very few records survive to tell us what the daily life of Egyptian scribes was like, or what exactly it took to become one. This is because of a quirk in the Egyptian cultural mindset. To quote a formidable pair of scholars, the husband and wife team of Rosalind and Jacques Jansen, the Egyptians in general do not record the means leading to an end, for instance, how they built the pyramids. So they never tell us in detail how boys were educated, nor are there any pictures of schools. Egyptians were interested in what lasted, what was permanent, rather than in the transitory, not in the way something was achieved, but simply in the end result. To be a scribe was essential. How one became one was hardly worth noting down. Still, we do have some idea of what a scribe's education involved, and we know that most kings were probably trained in basic literacy. So, we have some idea of what the education of Amunhotep I would have looked like during the first five or six years of his reign. The education of an Egyptian schoolboy was difficult, if surviving records are any indication. Egyptian teachers were famously strict, and their methods of discipline were harsh. To give some perspective on that, the Egyptian word to teach, sabai, was punctuated with the image of a man brandishing, well, a cane, for beatings, and education, and beatings. Today, the methods of an Egyptian schoolteacher would be considered unacceptable, probably cruel. To the ancients, it was different. Reading and writing were incredibly rare skills to possess, and to learn them at all was a privilege to be guarded. Failure simply was not an option, and so the educators of ancient Egypt were expected to discipline harshly, to overcome a child's natural unfocused nature through heavy workloads and beatings. For a teacher striving to educate Amunhotep, the matter was a bit more complicated. Even a trusted official could not simply beat an anointed king of Upper and Lower Egypt. But on the other hand, the king had to learn his letters and numbers. So there was only one effective solution. Amunhotep would be buried in work, given a gruelling exercise regime, and never allowed to forget his obligations. School was in session. Egyptian schooling began early in the morning, before the sun was up. 
It finished around midday, when heat became too much, and other duties were more pressing. The king, and the other boys of high rank whom he learned alongside, would gather in a courtyard or room of the palace at Thebes. With reed pens, and pieces of wood or pottery for their writing, they began the arduous tasks in literature, reading, writing, and grammar. There was a rich corpus of texts to learn from, such as dialogues between fictional characters, on the proper obedience to Ma'at. There were historical epics, like the tale of Sinue, or the teachings of Amenemhat, that would instruct the children in philosophical and moral questions, using the examples of the ancestors. There were great epics, like the dispute between Horus and Seth, a story that would reinforce the duties which now lay upon young Amunhotep, and the legacy he was bound to uphold. The young students would also learn to compose texts of their own, in different genres like hymns, poetry, moral lessons, and formal letter-writing. For the trained scribe, which many of these young students would someday be, the art of letter-writing in particular was one of the more useful skills, as it opened up the door to administrative correspondence, community service, and even international diplomacy. Over the next 20 to 30 episodes, we're going to see every element of these tasks as the scribes of the new kingdom practiced them. Amunhotep would sit at studies from dawn until around 1pm or so. He would copy out texts and recite them from memory, at the same time explaining the grammar of the text. His teacher and fellow students would engage in discussions about the morals in the story, and the relationship between these things and the greater ideals of Ma'at. This wasn't a dead poet society kind of relationship though. The teacher was instructing, not drawing enlightenment out of his students. There were wrong answers, and wrong answers were punished. As the hours of these lessons passed, the students would have been like any student. They'd get tired, probably sleepy at some point, or at the very least distracted and hard to focus. Which is why, as the sun reached its apex, school ended for the day, and the students dispersed their homes for lunch, before resuming duties in the afternoon. For the young king, afternoon duties would have included at least some physical education. This wasn't normal for the scribe, who were almost stereotypically weak and unfit, but a king had to be prime, especially in his youth. So Amunhotep would practice archery and running, and learn to drive a chariot or shoot arrows while another person drove. These skills were valuable in war, and in the Holy Said Festival, the thirty-year anniversary which every king hoped to reach. There he would have to prove his stamina and physical fitness. A regular exercise regime now helped prepare him for that, and to prove to the populace that he was fit and suitable to be the ruler of Egypt. Prove it he did, and for the first eight years of his reign, things were relatively easy for him. A few scant records suggest that when he was about seven, some Libyans living in the western delta tried to rise up against their Egyptian masters, but this rebellion was crushed pretty easily on the king's behalf, and until Amunhotep was fourteen or so, things remained quiet. But then the king came to physical maturity, and the time arrived when he would need to prove himself in one of the king's most fundamental roles, the proper leadership of warfare. By the time Amunhotep was fourteen, he was ready to take a more active role in the government. So the task of proving the state's military strength and acquiring new wealth for the royal household, fell to him. How would he get it? If your first thought at this question was, he'd attack Nubia, well, you are correct. Amunhotep's first target in warfare 
and in fact his only major campaign, was a campaign to Nubia. For a king in need of some quick wealth, Nubia was good hunting. It had a large population, a well-developed culture, and it had its own kingdom. That kingdom, the Kingdom of Kush, had become a powerful enemy during the Second Intermediate Period. Kush had threatened Upper Egypt, allied with the Hyksos, and even launched a raid at the town of El-Kab. Well now, Kush was fading. It had lost its major ally, the Hyksos, and had not expanded significantly while the Thebans were reuniting the country. So Egypt was clearly the stronger player, and Amunhotep was going to take advantage of that. He assembled his army of veterans and set off to the south. Quote, Jessica-Rei Amunhotep sailed south to Kush to enlarge the borders of Egypt. His majesty smote the Nubian bowmen in the midst of his army. They were carried off in chains. There were none missing. The fleeing had been destroyed as if they had never existed. Now I, Amozibana, was in the van of our troops, and I fought really well. His majesty saw my valour. I carried off two hands and presented them to his majesty. End quote. These are the words, once again, of an Egyptian soldier and sailor named Amos Ibana. Amos Ibana had served in the army of Amos during his campaigns, and he now transferred his service to that of Amunhotep. He fought in the front lines, and continued his habit of killing foes in single combat, taking the right hand of the deceased as proof. This marked his seventh and eighth foes killed in combat. Did he ever regret or lament these actions? We'll never know but I doubt it. For the king, warriors like Amozibana were a godsend. They knew what they were doing, and were a reliable source of expertise and stability. Raw recruits would rally around men like Amozibana, and the army was stronger for their presence. This kept the campaign together, and it made the Egyptian army more effective than it had ever been. The days of periodic recruitment and limited training were now ending. Amos Ibana and those like him were the first generation of a new style Egyptian army, a semi-professional army, an army made up of soldiers who served their king repeatedly year after year. For their service, they received land and slaves, and many became wealthy members of their communities. Prestige, wealth, and status were theirs to have, and the example of men like Amos Ibana meant that younger Egyptians now began to come to the army as a viable career. For the 14-year-old Amunhotep, circumstances could not have been more advantageous. His army was strong, and his enemies were weak. His country was peaceful, and his government was in the capable hands of his mother and grandmother. He could advance even further into Nubia, and subjugate as many of the locals as he wished. Quote, then the Nubian's people and his cattle were pursued, and I, Amozibana, carried off a living captive and presented him to his majesty. On the end of the campaign, I brought His Majesty back to Egypt in just two days, and I was rewarded with gold. I also brought back two female captives as booty, apart from those that I had already presented to His Majesty. Upon this, they made me a warrior of the ruler. End quote. A warrior of the ruler. Truly, Amozibana had reached great heights in his career. A warrior of the ruler is what it sounds like. A warrior named personally by the king, and honoured in front of him. Think of it as a badge of honour, bringing great status to the title holder. For Amozibana, the title was a ticket to status and fame at home. Pretty satisfactory work, all things considered. 
especially when you remember that just 15 years earlier, the Thebans had scarcely ruled past Abydos in the north or Elephantine in the south. Now, they ruled up to southern Palestine and down into the lands of Nubia, and they could look forward to the wealth and plunder that successful raids brought with them. They had restored their ancestral ruling rights, and now, in fact, they were giving birth to a small empire. As Amunhotep smashed aside the opposition in Nubia, he helped put that empire on its rapidly accelerating journey. But in the old days, the Egyptians had been mostly content to leave the border at a place called the Second Cataract. This was the location of Buhen, and the mighty fortresses built during Dynasty Twelve. It was the traditional border, beyond which only traders and occasional raiders travelled. Well, times were now a-changing. King Amosa had already gone past the Second Cataract, extending the border to the island called Sai. At Sai, archaeologists have found the remains of a small fortified village, with a temple and a statue of King Amos. Amunhotep visited this temple in his campaign, and he commanded that a statue of himself be placed next to that of his father. It was made of sandstone, and was eventually recovered, and now resides in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The army of Egypt returned from Nubia in 1521 BCE, rich in slaves and plunder. They had taken cattle, food, captives, and most especially gold. The Nubians had a lot of gold, thanks to a number of mines in their eastern lands. Now, that gold belonged to Amenhotep, and he could use this wealth to enrich his kingdom. That increasing wealth was beginning to take hold in society, and as the reign of Amenhotep progressed, the aristocrats of Thebes began to use it. They began to spend large on exactly what you'd expect, conspicuous displays of wealth, which helped proclaim one thing loud and clear. The good times were coming back. Because of the Egyptian habit of taking their earthly wealth into the afterlife, we know about the Theban prosperity from their tombs. Only a few tombs from the early 18th dynasty survive today. The most remarkable of these is the tomb of a man named Teti Ki, or the man who belongs to Teti. Teti Ki, the son of Rahotep, was the mayor of Thebes under Amos and Amunhotep, so he was the sort of man to rub shoulders with the powerful, and to wield influence on his own accord. He was the mayor of Thebes at a time when the city was being catapulted from the status of provincial power to national capital. In his own lifetime, Teti Ki was expected to oversee and manage the situation at a local level, and make sure that the city functioned properly, that its inhabitants were fed, employed, and contributing to the power and splendour of the royal household. Trying to imagine the pressures he would have dealt with day to day is difficult. In the early years of his service, he would have been dealing with a pretty limited domain, Thebes, the West Bank, and maybe some territories slightly to the north and south. By and large, he would have had to deal with very local concerns. But as time went on, and Armosa and his son extended the borders of the kingdom, eventually reuniting the whole country, Tetiki's job became a lot more intense. He had to manage the increased wealth of the city, 
as plunder from campaigns in Palestine and Nubia flowed into the territory in the wake of the Egyptian armies. Overseeing this transition can't have been an easy job, but Tetiki seems to have done a good enough job that Amunhotep permitted him to build a beautiful tomb west of Thebes. This tomb was located in a cemetery called Dra Abu al-Naga, a cemetery that housed the tombs of many 17th dynasty kings, so it was a prestigious site. In fact, the queen mother Ahotep was building her tomb here, and for Tetiki to earn a burial in this area suggests that Amunhotep valued his services highly. Tetiki is probably the highest ranking official whose tomb survives from this period, and its artistic features have led to it being embroiled in controversy. You see, back in the 1980s, several pieces of the wall paintings from Tetiki's tomb disappeared, stolen by art thieves from the local community. In 2000, they showed up again on the international auction circuit, and were purchased by none other than France's Musée du Louvre, or just the Louvre. You know, the place with Mona Lisa and all that jazz. The French picked up these wall paintings in 2000 and 2003, and that caused, well, a bit of a ruckus with the Egyptian government. The Egyptian state, under the leadership of now-deposed leader Hosni Mubarak, cut ties with the Louvre and suspended some of their archaeological permissions. That would never do. The French protested and said they did not know the paintings had been stolen, but the Egyptian government was having none of it. But c'est la vie. Eventually, the Louvre management and the French government came to an agreement with Mubarak and company, and the tomb paintings were returned to Egypt in 2009. It is a rare victory in the ongoing battle between ancient countries like Egypt and Greece, and the former colonial powers who now possess so many treasured items of cultural heritage. Unfortunately, in the time since the tomb paintings were stolen, the tomb of Tetiki was so badly damaged by looters trying to get at other paintings that the paintings now reside in the Cairo Museum. Restoring them to their original place is not feasible. So Tetiki's tomb is now an incomplete one, a victim of the ravages of time and criminality. Still, it makes for an interesting little story, and a good diversion before we return to the reign of Amunhotep I. Tetiki and his contemporaries were the beneficiaries of Egyptian foreign policy. This policy ravaged nearby territories and brought their movable wealth back to the capital. This wealth had two very visible effects. Firstly, it led to a generations-long beautification project in Thebes, which quickly transformed from moderately prosperous town to wonder-of-the-world type city. 90% of Thebes' reputation as a city of monuments comes from the era into which we are now entering, an era when temples, tombs and monuments sprang up like weeds, elaborate, spectacular weeds. Secondly, the wealth led to a huge growth in the Egyptian middle class. As the state invested its energy in building projects, it was forced to invest its material wealth in the people who could make such wonders possible. The state needed to train new craftsmen and artisans, and scribes, who could help manage the thousands of people they would need to bring their royal visions to life. The new Theban royalty knew that tombs and temples would require a huge workforce, a trained workforce, skilled in the thousand and one tasks which went into making high-quality buildings, statues, chambers and paintings. The crown would need craftsmen on an industrial scale, and so it seems that they began to spend large on training these new workers. The call went out. Artistry was in demand, come one, come all. 
The results were evident in the work. During the second intermediate period, tomb decoration had declined a bit in quality. Figures were more rough, and scenes didn't have the sort of symmetry or consistency that the Egyptians were so fond of. So you'd have people of equal status displayed with different heights, just because the artists messed up the proportions. Or the eyes would be too large, the bodies would be too skinny, or the hieroglyphs wouldn't be too neat. Those kind of basic errors were to be expected given the lack of resources during the 17th dynasty, but they weren't really acceptable for a city that could now claim to be the capital of Egypt, Nubia, and Sinai. But with an increase in funding, and more craftsmen being trained in the classical techniques, Theban tombs improved quickly. By the time Amenhotep launched his campaign in Nubia, quality really had improved. To quote Egyptologist Alan Lloyd, After the Theban resurgence, the consistency of figural proportions across whole scenes is so strong that a line drawn through the hair of one figure in a scene continues without variance to the hairline of the last figure. So, quality was really improving. The artisans were getting better and better at their work again. But on top of that, even aesthetic fashions were returning to a more classical style. In the 17th dynasty, tomb painters had favoured light colours, almost pastels, to decorate the backgrounds of scenes and to paint their hieroglyphs. But as the 18th dynasty began, folk switched back to darker colours, blues and greys. Doing this, they were consciously copying from those Old Kingdom and Middle Kingdom fashions, a bit of intentional retro styling to remind the people that the good days were back. The results were everywhere if you looked, especially in the tomb equipment that would eventually be prepared for Amenhotep himself. The mummy of this king is one of the only royal mummies that has never been unwrapped, for a very specific reason. It is wrapped in fragile bandages, which protect one of the most beautiful funerary masks ever created. The face of Amunhotep is a delicate yellow, and a bit dirty now, but the eyes shine brightly. They are wide and smiling, as is his mouth. His eyebrows are unfortunate. Thin and tapered, they are a bit high on the brow, giving Amunhotep a slightly surprised or quizzical look, which I rather appreciate. His headdress is a deep blue, with a golden serpent, Uraeus, crowning the forehead. Garlands of flowers and woven necklaces are still draped over his head, making the whole mummy mask a near-perfect time capsule of the early 18th dynasty, and the funerary habits of the rich and powerful. As the reign of Amunhotep I got underway, Thebes really was experiencing a resurgence in wealth and power. After the reunification of the country, and Amos's success in plundering Palestine and Nubia, that wealth was flowing into the hands of the royal household and their elite subordinates. Naturally, they were spending it, and fashions in iconography and tomb artefacts followed along obediently. For those living under the rule of Amunhotep I, and his mother and grandmother, this must have seemed like a return to the golden ages of legend. All of this had a profound impact on Amunhotep's legacy. About 200 years after Amunhotep I died, a festival was being celebrated in a small village west of Thebes. The villagers were honouring Amun, and as the music played, beer was drunk and songs were sung, the god's statue was brought out into the street for all to see. Cheers went up, prayers and invocations were called to the god, and the priests carried the statue through the crowd on a small throne. 
The more attentive villagers in the crowd would have noticed something unusual about the Samun statue. A small detail, perhaps, but an important one. They would notice that the statue of the god had a different face than usual. A mortal's face. A king's face. The face of a king now 200 years dead. The face of Amunhotep I. This is most unusual. It is incredibly rare for a king of Egypt to be associated so explicitly with a god like this, to in effect become that god. While we talk about kings ascending to the status of Osiris after death, that was a very particular myth and belief. In normal circumstances, very few kings would be associated with a god like Amun, and even represented as him. The king had effectively become a god in his own right, a new god, a unique member of the pantheon. The weird thing about this is, Amunhotep I wouldn't be your first pick to be a deified king. In his life, he didn't do anything hugely remarkable in the historical sense. So what is it about him that led to a full deification, and worship in a festival of Amun? The answer would have surprised the king, I think, because it was probably a totally innocuous decision at the time. It wasn't a war, or a major building project. It wasn't an administrative reform, or lavish contribution to a temple complex. It was, quite possibly, the most offhand thing he might have done, the sort of job that took minutes to approve, but had drastic knock-on effects. Amunhotep's most lasting contribution to the Egyptian state and society, and the reason he was so favoured in this particular festival, was that he and his mother, Amosa Nefertari, were the first patrons, and possibly the founders, of a very special village. This village has been called many things. The Place of Truth, the Workmen's Village, the City of the Tomb Builders, and just THE Village, the only one that mattered. Today, we know this village as the town of Deir el-Medina, and it has been one of the most important archaeological sites in Egypt since the late 19th century. It has been a hub of social, domestic and religious scholarship for more than a hundred years, and historians are still finding new things to talk about here. To put it simply, Deir el-Medina is amazing. It will appear with increasing frequency over the rest of the New Kingdom. There will be scandals, fights, murders, festivals, protest rallies, and good honest work, all accompanied by the rhythmic sound of chisels and daily domestic life. So how did Amunhotep I and Amosa Nefertari become the patron gods of the Place of Truth? Well, above this village, on the side of a hill, lies a small rock-cut temple dedicated to the queen and her son. It is not a remarkable temple, just a small sanctuary carved into the rock face, with three walls completing the enclosure. It's discreet and purely local. You wouldn't find any major festivals or rituals here. But it was good for the locals because it was much closer to the West Bank villages than the mighty temples of Karnak and Luxor, and it was more accessible to the common folk, who could place offerings outside the doorway and see the statue of the king and queen inside. They could offer their prayers directly to the couple, assured that the gods would hear them. Compared with Karnak and Luxor, where commoners were not even allowed past the first courtyard, this temple was amazing. Below the temple, the village of Deir el-Medina began as a small collection of houses. Probably just a handful, no more than a dozen. They were there for workers serving the nearby shrines and tombs, especially the tombs being built by nobles in the cliffs near Deir al-Bahari and Dra Abu al-Naga. This was a modest settlement, maybe a dozen families. But in the words of my favourite film, 
big things have small beginnings. The villager at his festival would not have been too bothered by a moon wearing Amunhotep's face. Amunhotep was not the first king in history to be deified, and Amun himself was intimately connected with the lineage of the Theban royal household. On top of that, a god whose very name meant the Hidden One could not be too precious about his looks, could he? I don't think so. Still, the villager would recognise the importance of Amunhotep, and the way that his unification with Amun symbolised and validated his own existence and life in Deir al-Medina. The village of Deir al-Medina got its start in such a tiny little way at the beginning of the 18th dynasty. Amunhotep and Amoza Nefertari's little shrine in the hills west of Thebes set the start for one of the most important settlements in Egyptian archaeology. As the workmen's village got its start, burgeoning from a couple of mud huts to a group of a dozen or so homes, the artisans of Thebes were growing in number, and their work was becoming more important. But even the very best craftsmen are useless if they don't have a job. The most important of all the projects underway in Amunhotep's Thebes was of course the royal tomb. This tomb is unfortunately one of Egypt's lost tombs. No one is sure where it is. Long story short, there are a number of candidates, and I won't go into all of them right now. Short story long, though, I'm a sucker for a good mystery. And so I've put together an extended discussion of the candidates for Amenhotep's tomb, and attached them at the end as a sort of mega epilogue. If you want to listen to this, stick around after the musical outro. If not, take that opportunity to skip on ahead to the next episode. After his campaign to Nubia in Regnal Year 8, Amunhotep I enjoyed another twelve and a half years on the throne. They were peaceful years, dominated by internal concerns like administration, organising the Theban city for its expansion, and temple building. Amunhotep finished off the monuments of his father, and then began to spend large on the temple of Karnak at Thebes. He enlarged the house of the god Amun-Re, and added a new limestone chapel, a nearly exact replica of the white chapel built by Sinusaret I, way back in Dynasty Twelve. These were prestigious contributions to the temple, and set the king apart from his immediate predecessors. As always, a king's reputation was partly built in the physical legacy he left behind. Huge monuments were a part of that, and in this sense, Amunhotep did fairly well. The king also commissioned repairs to monuments up and down the Nile Valley, especially in Upper Egypt. His name has been found at sites as diverse as Elephantine to the south of Thebes, Abydos to the north, and even at the Temple of Hathor in the Sinai Peninsula. There were some remarkable works, but there's not all that much left of them today. Among the long litany of Egyptian kings, and the record of royal builders, Amunhotep would probably rank somewhere around the middle. He acquitted himself well, but his works were mostly by the numbers, and did not make any noteworthy contribution to the history of royal monuments. Unfortunately, Amunhotep I has not left a particularly noteworthy legacy in archaeology. So today we remember him for other things, for his contribution to the village of Deir al-Medina, his work in setting the Egyptian empire in Nubia on its feet, the mystery of his tomb, and the fact that many hallmarks of 18th dynasty culture really started to emerge during and around the time of his rule. These were simple, secondary legacies. Aristocratic tombs became more splendid than those of the 17th dynasty, because Thebes was richer overall. 
and the workforce employed to construct these tombs ballooned tremendously in accordance with the demand. Thebes overall was experiencing a wondrous period of growth and expansion. These were factors in Amenhotep's later reputation, but overall they were byproducts of the times, rather than direct results of his specific policies. So Amenhotep I may have a reputation slightly exceeding his actual abilities, but who are we to contradict the ancients? The king did well in most respects. And now we reach the end of his reign. King Amunhotep I died 20 years and 7 months after coming to the throne. He can't have been much older than 27 or 28, and he had ruled the kingdom for more than three quarters of his life. His legacy was interesting. Since he had taken the throne, he had not pursued as many aggressive or accomplished policies as his father and uncle had done. Instead, he oversaw a period of consolidation, when Egyptians took stock of their newly restored power and wealth, and began to put those to good use. The king had led a small campaign, and proved himself an adequate ruler at home. But his greatest legacy, as I've said, was one that resulted not from his actions, but from his needs. As he put greater demands on the workforces of Thebes, the middle class of craftsmen, artisans, and tomb builders had grown exponentially, even more. As their communities began to form and grow into villages west of Thebes, the king came to be seen as a patron deity, he, and his mother, whom we'll learn about more fully next episode, came to be seen as gods in the Theban communities. Locals worshipped them, made offerings to them, and had images of them painted in their tombs. In the eyes of the Egyptians, these offerings and pictorial representations were the best immortality available. The king's funerary cult flourished strongly for centuries. The Egyptians knew that his soul would therefore flourish in turn. Fed by offerings, sustained by worship, and brought to life in beautiful, sacred imagery, Amunhotep I, the pleasant but unremarkable king, flourished in death the way he hadn't really done in life. For that, he must have been thankful. One way in which the king did not do so well was in his family affairs. Despite ruling for over 20 years, and having at least two wives, Amunhotep I failed to produce any children. Not one. This has led to speculation, of course, about his fertility or his sexuality. Neither of these have any contemporary evidence one way or the other, so we cannot say for certain why he did not have children. Perhaps he simply did not want them. But since political stability and royal continuity were on the line, I don't think his mother or grandmother would have let him get away with that. I can absolutely imagine one of them, especially Ahotep, marching the king to its bedchamber and making sure he got the job done with his wife. But that may just be my imagination, playing games with personalities. Perhaps at the end of the day, Amunhotep tried to have children, but couldn't. In the end, it wasn't too much of an issue. As the king's reign entered its second decade, the absence of an heir became all too apparent. And sometime before his twentieth year on the throne, Amunhotep accepted the fact he would have to choose an heir from outside his bloodline. Anything less invited political discord, perhaps even civil war. The solution was to pick a trusted official to be the king's heir, and possibly to become his co-regent. This man was named Jehuti Mesu, or One Born of Thoth. Today, we know him by the Greek version of his name, Tatmos I. Tatmos I entered the royal family by marrying King Amunhotep's cousin, a princess named Ahmes. After he became king in his own right, he also married one of Amunhotep's sisters, 
In this way, he doubled down on his legitimacy, with the result that, despite a lack of direct male heir, the lineage of Queen Ahhotep, matriarch of the 17th dynasty, persisted. I like to think that she had the last laugh, but that is a story for next episode. And now our epilogue, which I've dubbed, Where in the World is the Tomb of Amunhotep? If you are not particularly interested in the mystery of Amunhotep's tomb, feel free to end the episode here. If, like me, you enjoy a little mystery or a detailed diversion, follow me as we explore this matter in depth. In late 2005, there were excited rumours coming out of Luxor, Thebes. These rumours said that a new royal tomb had been discovered and that it was completely intact. Treasure, a mummy, all that jazz. It would rival the tomb of Tutankhamun. Well, not so fast. The rumours were wrong. It is true that an archaeological team working in the cliffs above Deir al-Bahari thought, briefly, that they had stumbled on a new tomb, maybe even the one that they were seeking, the tomb of Amunhotep. It seemed like a momentous occasion, the director of the excavation even met with Zahi Hawass, director of antiquities at the time, to share his suspicions. Everyone was cautious but excited. Sadly, no such luck. There was no tomb, but the rumour had already got halfway around the world before the truth could get its pants on. Disappointment was palpable, as people hoping for one of the greatest finds since Tutankhamun had to walk away empty-handed. C'est la vie. Once the dust settled, so to speak, Hindsight reminded everyone of a couple small facts. Even if there had been an intact royal tomb, it could not possibly have been that of Amunhotep I. Why? Well, because if the hypothetical tomb was intact, then that meant that it still had its sarcophagus and its mummy. But we already have the mummy of Amunhotep I. It's safe in the Cairo Museum. A beautiful mummy as it happens, still wrapped up and never unwrapped. So the tomb could not have been Amunhotep's, even if it was intact. For our search, that means one thing. The tomb is either lost forever, or it's been found and we just haven't proved it yet. So historians dutifully returned to the standard theories. But their curiosity was renewed, and in the last ten years at least three separate tombs have been highlighted as good candidates for the chamber of Amunhotep. All of the theories have their flaws, and all have merits and all of them are based on a common source, a source so rare and unlikely that I can't believe it genuinely exists. How does one go about finding a royal tomb that has been lost? If this were Indiana Jones or Tomb Raider, we would have some kind of text or map describing the location in cryptic details, so that we could then go on an elaborate journey. But since this is real life, we don't have that. Oh wait, what? We do have one of those texts? Well, I'll be damned. Around 400 years after Amunhotep I died, the chief of police in the Theban necropolis, a man named Pewero, was ordered to inspect the tombs of the Valley of the Kings and its surrounding area. 
The chief was investigating allegations that the mayor of West Thebes had been negligent in his duty to protect the necropolis, and that he had allowed, or even been complicit in, a swathe of tomb robberies that had threatened the sacred sepulchres of the great kings. Pewero was on the hunt to find out which tombs had been damaged or plundered, and which ones were safe. He was accompanied by several royal scribes, some priests, and a cohort of police soldiers. This is what he recorded. Quote, Year 16, third month of the first season, day 18, under the majesty of the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, the lord of the two lands, Nefer-Kare Setep Enre, Ramesses the Ninth. The sepulchres and tombs investigated on this day by the inspectors included, first of all, the eternal horizon of King Jesakare Amunhotep I. The tomb is 120 cubits deep, measured from the superstructure, which is called the High Ascent. The whole complex is located north of the temple known as the House of Amunhotep of the Garden. Concerning this tomb, the mayor of the city, Peser, had reported to the vizier, saying, the thieves have broken into it. But we inspected it on this day, and it was found undamaged. End quote. Holy heck, that is awesome. That is literally the closest you'll ever get to an ancient Egyptian text describing something like a treasure map that you find in an adventure film. I mean, this is a record of Egyptian officials going literally door to door in the necropolis, checking seals and making sure that every tomb in the area was safe. And on top of that, they describe, albeit vaguely, the location of the tomb of Amenhotep. Damn, that is a good story. Archaeologists have been attacking this text for clues for a while, and the first tomb they identified as a good match for the conditions lies in the valley of Deir al-Bahari. It is near the temple of Montuhotep II, above a now lost temple that might have been dedicated to Amenhotep. That's pretty vague, and it covers a wide area. So, where could this tomb be? Deir al-Bahari is around the corner from the Valley of the Kings. At the time of Amunhotep, it was home to a number of Middle Kingdom tombs, especially tombs of high officials. It was also home to a magnificent funerary temple, built by that legend of the 11th dynasty, Montuhotep II, who reforged the country after the disunity of the First Intermediate Period. He was a splendid figure, and it was apparently a splendid temple. Unfortunately, it's mostly gone now. But in Amunhotep's day, Montuhotep's temple would have been magnificent. And just like the tomb decorators who were looking to the Middle Kingdom for inspiration in their paintings, Amunhotep may have looked to Montuhotep as a good figure to locate his tomb near to. Glory by proximity, that kind of thing. What better way to connect your reign with that of a legendary hero than by putting your tomb near to his? Well, it just so happens that there is a tomb around the corner from Deir al-Bahari that might be the one built by Amunhotep. It is called Tomb ANB, and it sits on a plateau in an area called Dra Abu al-Naga. Dra Abu al-Naga is the cemetery where Amosa I was probably buried, and it's where many 17th dynasty rulers went to their graves. So that's a pretty good area for Amunhotep to choose, in theory. The initial excavation of this tomb was conducted by Howard Carter, the man who found Tutankhamun, and he concluded that it was built somewhere around the early 18th dynasty. Some fragmentary objects found in the tomb bore the royal cartouches of Amenhotep I, so it was definitely of the era. But you can find objects with a king's name in the tombs of many people, 
family members, high officials, even those who simply held the legacy of that king in particular regard. And considering Amunhotep I eventually became a god in the Theban area, well, you can see how these objects are not exactly a smoking gun. And wouldn't we expect Amunhotep I, the founder of Deir al-Medina, whose workmen built the Valley of the Kings, to be buried somewhat closer to that valley? Well, maybe so. There is a tomb in the Valley of the Kings that has been nominated as a candidate for Amunhotep's chamber. The second candidate isn't in the Deir al-Bahari or Dra Abu al-Naga valleys, it's around the corner in the mouth of the Valley of the Kings, which I guess is a pretty good candidate for a king's tomb. This tomb is called KV-39, and it is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, in the Valley of the Kings. So, it's the right age, since 18th dynasty is when the kings started to build their tombs here. More on that in a later episode. So that sort of tips the odds in KV-39's favour, right? Well, KV-39, or King's Valley 39, is a small tomb, and prominent Egyptologist Mr. Nicholas Reeves, who's been in the news recently, described it thus. The whole place has an eerie, claustrophobic, slightly sinister air to it, not helped by the deep cracks crisscrossing the walls and ceiling. You get the impression that the whole place could cave in on you at any moment. Well, that seems a bit inauspicious. You would expect a royal tomb to be more, well, grand, right? The thing with that is, the artisans working for Amunhotep I were kind of redesigning the wheel, so to speak. The king's father had built a pyramid at Abydos, but buried himself in a sepulchre at Thebes. So the old ways of doing things were clearly falling by the wayside. New ways of building tombs had to be invented. So whoever was designing the tomb of Amunhotep had to work to new ideas. And you can't really expect the first of this new wave of royal tombs to be a perfect model right off the bat, can you? Well, I don't, anyway. That being said, KV-39 is weird, even by more forgiving standards. There aren't many tombs like it. In fact, the closest comparison I can think of off the top of my head is the tomb of Tutankhamun, and we all know how that seems to be turning out. The tomb is located in a very small wadi, above the much later tomb of Tutmos III. It consists of a small corridor that goes underground to the west, before it suddenly ends in a very tiny, unimpressive chamber. Well, that's no good for a royal tomb. Evidently, the architects thought so too, because they quickly changed the layout and added a whole new section to the south. Two long corridors and stairways break off from the first section of the tomb and head in their own direction. One goes east, and after long corridors and stairwells, ends in a small chamber used for artefacts, or for a secondary burial, such as the king's wife. The second corridor goes to the south, and after a long passage it ends in a small chamber with a pit, a pit just large enough for a coffin. The design of this tomb is cool, no doubt about that, but it's very unconventional. You can see a picture of it online at our usual haunts. It sort of makes sense if you think of it as a precursor to the more elaborate and perfect tombs of the late 18th and early 19th dynasties. It has the long corridors, the sunken pits for sarcophagi, and the secondary chambers used as decoys or for additional burials. So it sort of makes sense that Amunhotep might have an unusual tomb in the traditional sense. His architects were testing the waters after all. The design of the tomb doesn't confirm or deny its identity, and its location is a good fit but it's still roughly equal with tomb A and B. So we're a bit stuck. Fortunately, in 1989, 
a new excavation began in this tomb to determine its true identity. Archaeologist John Rose went at the tomb, and he and his team cleared out the rubble, some 1,300 bags of it. They laboriously dug through the remains, and sifted through everything. In the process, they found some good treasures. Treasures like a golden ring of the III, whose tomb is nearby, a lot of mummy bandages, some pieces of sandstone bearing the names of some 18th dynasty kings like the III, the I, the successor of Amenhotep, and the mid-18th dynasty ruler Amenhotep II. Pretty good finds, especially the label of the I, who, as successor to our friend Amenhotep, would have been responsible for burying him in his tomb. So that was a big deal, and Rose dutifully published the finds in 2000. But he surprised everyone when he said that, after careful consideration, he thought that the tomb was definitely not that of Amenhotep. Instead, he thought it was the tomb of another individual, a private individual, and that all of the 18th dynasty artefacts were a result of that wave of police inspections and their aftermath. You see, a few hundred years after the chief of police, Puero, investigated the tombs, the priests of Thebes decided that the situation had become too dangerous to continue. They initiated a great project to remove the royal mummies from their tombs, and rebury them in a new tomb, a secret cache, hidden from all. In order to do that, they had to remove the mummies. They had to document and tag them, rewrap those which had been damaged by robbers, and move them to the secret cache. All of this required a staging place, preferably an empty or disused tomb. Well... John Rose suggests that KV-39 is the tomb they used for this process. The mummies had been taken from their tombs, moved to KV-39 for identification and re-wrapping, hence all of the bandages, and the tokens with the names of kings like the III, and then they were sent on their way to the cache at Deir al-Bahari. Well, that might be disappointing for anyone looking for Amenhotep's tomb, but it's still a cool scenario. I'll be returning to that story in a later episode. So KV-39 was a good contender, but it's been stricken off the list now by a thoughtful archaeologist and those very unusual circumstances, which started with the chief of police, Pewero, and ended with the complete reburial of a dozen great kings and their families. Our third and final option for the chamber of Amenhotep I is called TT-320, or Theban Tomb 320. It is a significant tomb despite its anonymity, because it is closely connected with the chief of police Puero's inspection, and the eventual reburial of the royal mummies. In fact, this tomb is not just closely connected with that royal cache, it is the royal cache. TT320 is a secret tomb in the hills of Deir al-Bahari, above the tomb of Montuhotep II, and in 970 BCE it was used as a sepulchre for the complete reburial of many 18th and 19th dynasty kings and their families. What a scoop, huh? It would be wonderfully full circle if the tomb of Amenhotep, arguably the first true king of the New Kingdom, wound up being reused at the end of the New Kingdom to house the bodies of almost all the great rulers that followed him. That would be neat. TT320 has one massive point in its favour in terms of being Amenhotep's tomb. It is where archaeologists found his mummy. Obviously that's not quite a smoking gun, but if the tomb is a candidate for the chamber, and it has the king's mummy, well that's a good start. Add to that the fact that it's in the hills of Deir al-Bahari, above the temple of Montuhotep, and you've got a tomb in the area described by the chief of police, Pewero, and since it contains the mummy of the king, that is a really good start. 
But apart from that, TT320 doesn't have a lot going for it. Nowadays, without any real proof but on the basis of educated guesses, archaeologists think the tomb was originally the tomb of Amunhotep's mother, Queen Amosa Nefertari, whose mummy also survived and was found in this tomb as part of the royal cache. So if you're weighing the options, the tomb is just as likely to be hers as his. The whole question would be so much easier to answer if tomb 320 was still in its original state. But about 500 years after Amunhotep died, a priest of Thebes named Parnejem, the sweet-smelling one, took over the tomb and had it altered. He wanted to use it as a grave for himself and his family, and in those days the power of the priests was immense. Architects duly went to work on his behalf, and the tomb became the tomb of Parnejem. I feel I should on principle be put out about that, but it did mean that when the priests of Thebes decided they needed to rebury the mummies of so many famous kings, tomb 320 was one of the best candidates in the area. It was large and secret, and it had more than enough rooms that the priests could happily fit in all of those important coffins. So I guess we should be grateful for that. After all, as Rosalind and Jacques Danson said earlier, the Egyptians were interested in what lasted, what was permanent, rather than in the transitory, not in the way something was achieved, but in the end result. Parnegem and his successors considered this work acceptable, so who are we to judge? To sum up, there are three options for the tomb of Amunhotep. One of them, KV-39, was probably just a tomb of the period that was eventually used as a staging ground for the mass reburial of the royal mummies. So it has artifacts linked to Amunhotep, but nothing that really hammers the connection home. Just a coincidence. The other option, TT320, is a good candidate, given that Amunhotep's mummy was found there. But that tomb was too heavily redesigned to give any evidence for its original layout. And since the whole cache of royal mummies was found here, it's no surprise that Amunhotep was there too. Finally, there is Tomb ANB, now considered the most likely candidate for Amunhotep's tomb. It is small and undistinguished, but fragmentary objects in the tomb bore his name, and it's in the right location according to the Chief of Police's inspections. It's also around the right time of the early 18th dynasty. It's halfway between Deir al-Bahari and the Valley of the Kings, and so it's in the proper area. Today, Egyptologists think that this was probably the tomb. You can see pictures of all of these tombs on our website and on our Facebook page. So that is the mystery of Amunhotep's tomb. It's a long mystery, and there's still no answer to it. Although Egyptologists are fairly confident on one of the options, there are still those who argue for one or the other, or some other tomb entirely. At the end, it may be that we still haven't found the tomb of Amunhotep, and that it lies still hidden somewhere in the Deir al-Bahari or Valley of the Kings region. Which brings us to the final end of this episode. Join us next time as we explore the reign of the I, continuing our discussion of scribes in the 18th dynasty, and exploring the family politics that gave the new kingdom its proper birth. When you visit Arizona, 
time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.